Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So today's message is um, just an example of those sorts of prophecies in the New Testament which have not yet been fulfilled. Uh, one of the things that we studied during our series uh, in Hebrews, which just ended last week, was the notion of certain prophecies in the New Testament which have already been fulfilled. And we saw them as prophecies that were future to the readers of the letters, but now are past regards to us. One of the things that was uh, very illuminating for me during my time in Hebrews is to just once again revisit some of the structures of the letter to see the importance of understanding the fulfillment of Jesus' warnings of judgment against the city of Jerusalem, and those warnings of judgment being a righteous vindication of the apostles and early church of the first few uh, years of the church's life. And I've received a number of questions regarding that uh, series of teachings as 
as anyone who's come to our church for a while may have heard, 70 AD is a big and important thing in the history of the New Testament. It's something that is, uh, occurs after the closing of the letters, but nevertheless is indicated in almost all of them. And one of the things that I, I've been asked is, okay, so if, if the new city which comes down out of heaven is the church, if the bride of Christ is being established by the prophets and the apostles in that generation before the passing away, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 8 of the things which are ready to vanish away, then what is left to be fulfilled in the New Testament? And that's a great and important question. In fact, it's a vital question if we're to understand the difference between promises past and promises future. This is a wonderful example of those sorts of promises which still are future. That is, promises that we have of a great hope, not only of the return of Jesus uh, in a real, literal way, but also a grand consummation of everything in the created order according to God's preordained, foredestined, foreknown plan. One of the things that's important to see is that within the context of God's mission in the earth, he has an intended destination. You and I, we live by human reason and human knowledge, human foresight, and are being renewed by the Spirit in order to think in the way that God thinks about history. But if we only enter into thinking about the future in our natural mind, especially at this cultural climate in our country, we may be tempted to think that, you know, everything from here on out is just getting worse. One of the things that's interesting about that perspective is, you know, you you have to basically imagine that things in the past were really great and it's been steadily getting worse, uh, which is kind of interesting if you think about just anything in life or history or, you know, the infant mortality or or what have you. Over the course of time, God is remaking the world, and part of that is the common graces that come through the avenues of the church as she influences culture, establishes technology, works mercy and service gifts throughout all the countries of the world. God is in the business of restoring things. Now, saying that, he does from time to time judge nations and is constantly doing that. He's constantly in the process of ruling the nations. But that does not mean that just because Jesus has a rod of iron, that that is the intended destination for all peoples. In fact, we see it in Revelation 4 and 5, a great community of people taken from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding the throne, entering into the heavenly sanctuary in worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Just as Isaiah had seen years before, with the vision of the cherubim, now the vision of the cherubim is also attended by peoples from every tribe, every tongue. And so God is in the business of remaking the world. That's what we mean when we say redemptive history. God is working through the things that he has done in choosing Adam, in choosing Noah, in choosing Abraham, in, in finally sending after prophecy from the prophets, the patriarchs, the judges, time and again, all of these shadows to Christ being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. God is remaking the world through that, ultimately coming through his son, and now has been giving the the spirit of God to the church in order to bring about the transformation that he had destined from before the fall. And so when we talk about redemptive history, of course we include the fall, but that is not the beginning of the story. God knows the end from the beginning. And therefore, when we ask the question, if some or or a majority of the prophecies in the New Testament were fulfilled in the first century at the close of, of judgment on Jerusalem, what remains, my answer is clearly a blessed hope, a, a belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we say that Jesus came against Jerusalem in a judgment coming, we are not saying that he came finally and fully. It was rather just a visitation of judgment. And when I say Jesus came in judgment, I mean, for example, when Abraham was visited by the three men from, or the three, the three visitors, he's visited by three people, or three people who look like people, um, and one of them stays behind and tells everything that's about to happen. Two are sent out. Now, some people think that this is a Trinitarian theophany where you have the Father, the Son, the Spirit. I think that contradicts clear scripture. No one has seen God at any time, uh, but rather we, in the image of Christ, we have seen him from John 1. Uh, 
or sorry, I think that's in First John. Nevertheless, the point being, I think that's Jesus and two angels. And in fact, when David comes along, those, those people visit Abraham before they visit Sodom and Gomorrah with destruction. Likewise, in the time of David, it says that the angel of the Lord was going to come and wipe out the city of Jerusalem, but David you know, uh, made a prayer and the Lord relented. So I, when I'm saying Jesus came in a judgment coming against the city, I'm not saying that Jesus came in, in the final and full way. So just to clarify, those promises which still remain are mighty and great in God. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. There is, is an absolute wonderful hope of a second literal coming uh, by the Lord himself. And that is to be understood in the context of the New Testament. And we see promises over and again. 1 Corinthians 15 would be another example of something that is still future to us as well. So just to clarify, I know a number of people had some questions about uh, the, the close of our study in Hebrews. But why does that matter to us today? Why does it matter that we understand where the future is going? What is God doing on the throne now? Where is he taking all of this? Well, I'm convinced that how, what you believe about the future radically shapes how you live today. And, and by that, I just mean, you know, just in, in a term of human wisdom alone, you can see the truth of that. For example, if you're going to play basketball later today after church, that begins to shape how you behave in the morning. You're going to put your shoes in the gym bag. You're going to probably before that, learn how to play basketball or <laughs> potentially, you know, stretch or something like that. I would watch basketball. Uh, no, I, I love basketball. I love shooting. I don't love playing basketball. I love shooting basketball. The point being that what you believe about the future or what you anticipate in the future radically informs the actions you take today. Your vision for the future determines your willingness to sacrifice, your willingness to obey God, your willingness to do the hard things, to suffer with hope and with perseverance in your heart in the midst of trials. And really, that's, our, that's what we want to look at today. I, I've shared this anecdote before, but I know some people who back in the 60s and 70s, part of the Jesus movement, I wasn't around there um, then. Some of you may not realize that, but uh, I'm, I'm not that old. And the point being that they, you know, they would share with me that their idea of doom and gloom, that, that Jesus was going to come back and that there was going to be a great apostasy before his return. Uh, again, I believe that's already been fulfilled, but that's neither here nor there. They, they believed that Jesus was going to come back and most of the nations were unconverted at the time. They still are today. And um, Jesus was going to set up his reign in Jerusalem and he was going to wipe out the nations at the... Uh, the battle from you know the the battle outside of Jerusalem in Armageddon. That's the that's where the term comes from, and that the nations, all the nations, were going to be arrayed against the nation of Israel, and and they believed that cataclysmic doom was coming against the country. Like massive numbers of people were going to be either slaughtered or left behind in a in a tribulation, and only a very small number, very small percentage of the the country was going to have any sort of understanding of what was going on or any truth or reality with God. And they were so convinced that this was going to happen within a few years that they told me we didn't take pictures of our kids because we knew Jesus was coming back soon and we wouldn't need them. We didn't go to college. Because Jesus was coming back soon, what's the point in getting a master's degree if Jesus is going to come back just a few years from now? And so that's not me criticizing that perspective. That's someone who used to adopt that perspective, saying this is how our view of the future determined what we were going to be doing. And so it's a major element for us in Grace Christian Fellowship to understand that God is at, in the business of remaking and reshaping the world. That what God saw take place through the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden was not a surprise to him, but rather was considered, even, even foreordained and known, and is ultimately going to be undone so that his purpose of glorifying his name is greater than had it not ever happened. That's an interesting idea, but I, I'm convinced of the truth of it, that God so loves to demonstrate his mercy towards sinners that the, the sin of Adam and Eve, really the sin of all, all people, was foreordained, foreknown, foreseen. Though God is not culpable for that sin, nevertheless, he is in the business of remaking the world and undoing that sin. And I believe that that's 
pretty much essential to the gospel. That Jesus is not coming just to snatch a few out of the fire while the rest of the world burns, but actually he is in the business of remaking the world. And I think that that's what Romans 8 is talking about. So why are we talking about Romans 8? In the context of having completed this series on Hebrews, I want to show you not only does the great Christian hope remain, that the judgment coming of Jerusalem is not a... uh, It's not a... um, disruptor of that idea that that Christ will return in glory to uh, vindicate his people and that will be at the culmination when he hands the kingdom over to the Father, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. Not only do I want to do that, but I also want to create for you a understanding of how you are to persevere. If you do not believe that there is any point in the world eventually becoming more thoroughly uh, evangelized, more thoroughly Christianized, my, my question to you would be then, what are you doing? You know, Paul and, and the other apostles in writing to, I believe, the Corinthians, he says, if there's no resurrection, then we among all men are most to be pitied. And I would say, yes and amen, and even more so, if there's no hope of the church becoming greater in witness and power and, and relevancy to the world, if the world is not going to be thoroughly evangelized, then what's the business of working? Why, why do any gospel mission at all? If ultimately we look to the future and everything is falling apart, then ultimately our efforts are already doomed. They're already worthless. They're already judged as not going to bear fruit. And yet Jesus himself says that bearing fruit is a proof that we are his disciples. So I'm convinced that God is in the business of remaking the world. I think this is what Romans 8 says and I think that that understanding, that you are joining in with God through his church, being aided by the Holy Spirit, using the tool of the gospel of his word, that you are joining a grand army that is sweeping through every place. We're, we're going for total takeover. By the way, King Jesus already has it, but uh, we're, we're, you know, we're cleaning up. The analogy always is, you know, after D-Day, the, the war was effectively over. And even, even more so, you know, Satan is, is not alive and well. <laughs> he, he might be alive, but he's cut off from the author of life, and he's not doing well. The point being that God is in the business of thoroughly bringing light into the darkness, and we have been uh, privileged to participate that. Therefore, I think it is helpful to re-examine, if you, if you currently believe that um, you know, the Antichrist is going to come soon and that the world will increasingly go through a grand apostasy, I would encourage you to revisit the scriptures and to, especially in a pa- passage like this, to re-examine them and then think about, okay, well, wh- what's the nature of God? Does God just leave behind his creation? And then re-examine them in the light of, of scripture. Every time there is a catastrophic sin and failure, In the Old Testament scriptures, God is the first one on the scene. He is the first one to repair. He sends prophets to rebuke. He sends prophets to restore and to heal. And God's nature, God's way of dealing with his people is restorative. So therefore, I think it's helpful if you don't have a view that the future is ultimately going to be more and better and thoroughly glorifying to Christ, then I believe that will dramatically weaken your resolve to stand under temptation, under suffering, under persecution. So that's why I want to talk about the nature of our perseverance as being grounded in the Trinitarian action of God to you as a believer. Now this, of course, talks about the church, but it also, I I believe this passage also is directly focused on an individual level perseverance in the context of a group of people who've been redeemed. And so I hope to show you that God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are radically committed toward you being strengthened and persevered in your faith. So I want to look at five elements today. I want to look at God's goal in redemptive history. We talked about that a little bit. I want to look at the Holy Spirit's intercession for us. Many Christians understand that Jesus Christ, as this passage and others, says is at the right hand of the Father, and he is currently interceding. He's currently praying for us. But this passage also says that the Holy Spirit himself is interceding for you. So not only is the Son interceding, but also the Spirit. I want to look at the Father's promises in salvation. That is, what God begins, he does not uh, stop. 
And I think that we can reason from there to the larger picture. I want to look at the father's heart for his children, understanding that God as a father is a perfect father and is graciously disposed towards his children. And then finally, I want to look at Christ's love for his saints. And by Christ's love for his saints, I don't mean his feelings about the saints. I mean his action that he did in his work when he was here on the earth and his current actions, his intercession and pleading for you. So in addressing the sufferings at hand, Paul does not even consider evaluating them in the same category. I want you to look at this verse clearly. He says in verse 18, for I consider that they are not worth comparing. You, you may know the phrase comparing apples with oranges. Oranges have rinds that you can't eat. Apples are sweet. Oranges are sweet, but they're also citrusy. I mean, we're, they're totally different things. Try explaining to someone who has never had an orange what an orange is if they've only had an apple. It wouldn't work very well. The point is it's a categorical difference. He says, I'm not even considering them. I'm not balancing the scales. I'm not even looking at these things that we're suffering because of the great glory that is to be revealed. And then the reason he does that is because he has a confidence that there is a glory that is coming. He says in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He says, the reason I'm not going to consider the sufferings in light of the future glory to be revealed is because there is a guaranteed future glory to be revealed. And then he reasons to it saying, for the creation waits. And so today we see brokenness and failure, poverty, death, all around us. I mean, if you just look in the last three or four days of, of news, we've got Hurricane Matthew killing 500 plus in Haiti. We've got various political travesties going on in our country. Ongoing political parties who are tolerating the slaughter of children, 60 million at this point. And one of the things that's interesting about the sinful effect of abortion is now we don't have to just talk about 60 million people who are missing from our population in this country. Because it's been going on for so long, you have to think about the children that those people would have had. And so the answer is more like 100 million people have been eliminated through the actions of sin, the toleration of the murder of children. There is no doubt that this world is still reeling under the effects of sin. Now the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we look at the world and say to ourselves, what hope is there at all? And I'm convinced that the scripture is very clear. There is a great and abiding hope. Though for a little while the things are bleak, God is undoing sin's ravaging effect. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is, this is talking about God's curse on the earth during the time of Adam, when Adam sinned and after Adam sins and covers it up, he then comes and pronounces a temporary subjection to futility over the earth. He says to Adam, you'll still work the ground, but now thorns and thistles will come up from it. Eve will still be able to bear children, but now there will be pain that's multiplied in the bearing of children. But then the final promise, the final curse against the serpent and promise to us is that Eve will bear a seed and that seed will smash the serpent's head. He doesn't say that Eve will temporarily step on the serpent's lower spine and then later he'll be revived over the course of 2,000 years and eventually deceive the church. He doesn't say that. He says his head will be crushed. I've never seen a snake whose head was crushed who comes back to life. He says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I'm convinced that after the second coming, of Jesus Christ, when all the dead are raised, those who, are, who have done works of iniquity are judged forevermore, and those who by faith in God have done works of righteousness are vindicated forevermore. I believe that there will be a literal creation, a redeemed and restored world in which we will have very important things to do in ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth. I think that the martyrs rule and reign now, and that one day you and I, will, we will live in a great Eden-like city and it will be absolutely amazing, and the whole world will continually be transformed into ever-glorifying God. I believe that this time before the eschaton, that, be, that is, before the last day, is a temporary time. And in fact, it's not even the majority of the time. As Paul says, they've been laboring under the birth pains. I want you to see this in, in verse 19. Creation is waiting 
And then verse 20 and 21, creation was subjected unto a final purpose that the creation will be set free from bondage. So knowing that God desires to transform the entire world or cosmos, we can understand the disconnect between what we see now and what we hope for in the future. Because it's not based on human reason, it's based on the promises of God. God is going to set free creation. Look at verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I think that what Paul is talking about is that the world itself is in a transitional time and that there is a destiny to be revealed. When you think about a human life, the, we actually even think about it, we, we count the age of their life from their birthday, not from their conception. And so he's discussing this in a metaphor, saying that God is still just now beginning the world. And I'm, I'm thinking of it like this, that, that just as a child after they're born really begins to live and grow and thrive and mature and to, to an adult human, likewise with the world, God is taking the world through a temporary phase. And that phase is ultimately going to be finalized. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. So there's this groaning. The creation is groaning under the weight of sin. We ourselves are groaning under the weight of oppression and persecution, those things which are even weaknesses within ourselves. But ultimately, that groaning is going to be taken up, as we're going to see, into the Spirit himself. That is, the Spirit in his intercession for you, takes on your weight of sin and suffering. Now, by saying that, I do not mean that the Holy Spirit enters into your sin, but rather he comes alongside you and like an intercessor of old, bears the same burdens that you have as he appeals to the Father for you on on your behalf. So how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live in the light of the future, not moving from worry to worry, not understanding that the hope that we have is ultimately futile, not believing that the world will ultimately come to nothing and doom and gloom and everything's getting worse, but rather that God is remaking the world. And we know this because it's the exact same hope as the gospel. He says in verse 24, for in this hope, in the hope of the creation being set free from bondage to sin, in that hope, we were saved. So there's this category of hope that Paul is talking about, a particular hope, and that hope is identified as the hope that the creation will be set free, like a child springing forth from his mother's womb. That creation will be set free to the glorious liberty of the sons of God, and it is that same hope in which you were saved. This is why I think that the scripture's understanding of the future, what God is doing in the future to redeem the world, is the exact same part of the gospel. He says the same hope is the hope that, in which you were saved. And so understanding that that's, it's not a secondary idea in the gospel, but it is the very same hope, we see how God is doing something magnificent and amazing. He says, now hope that is not seen is not hope. He immediately answers the objection saying, well, wait a second. You know, we know that Christ suffered. We know that Christ ascended. We know the gospel and we know its truth. But you're saying that the creation's deliverance is the same hope as what we are being saved in, what's the disconnect? How do we understand that when we see all these things going on? And brothers and sisters, if you think today is bad, I mean, the people who are reading this letter are sitting under the weight of oppressive emperors who are killing Christians right and left. I mean, the sorts of things that were going on at this time in history, various emperors would dip Christians in tar or in in fat, and then they would crucify them and light them on fire. And, you know, we don't like it when somebody dislikes a comment on Facebook or something. This is, this is an amazing amount of persecution. They were being fed to lions, as, as you might know. They, they were being persecuted not just by the Romans, but also by the Judaizers. They were going to battle against Gnostic heresies. They were going to battle against Oppressive, oppressive slavery and pederasty, if you know what that term means. Horrible, wicked things going on at that time. And in light of that, they're asking the question, how can we have that hope? Because if we look around, everything is terrible. He says, for we do not hope for what is seen. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The principle behind the knowledge that God has not abandoned the world creates for the Christian a patience that passes human reason. The peace that passes understanding. If you limit God's action in your life to only what you can understand, you can never have the peace that passes understanding. Because it's not rationally communicated, it's spiritually communicated. And so this exact hope is transforming the world, and he says it's the same one as the gospel. God's redemptive plan, therefore, does not include the redemption of some men while leaving history to doom. On the contrary, Paul calls it the pains of childbirth. So the question is, if this despair is not the right answer, and rather hope is, how are we to be assured that that hope is not fruitless? Well, it is not up to you alone, but rather the Holy Spirit also joins in with your groans. As we mentioned before, Christians do not despair because the Holy Spirit takes up the same travail. In verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now, one of the things that's amazing here is the knowledge that your understanding of the future even if you know that God is in the business of remaking the world and that you ought to participate with his spirit and his church in being salt and light to the world around you, even if you know that, you still don't know what to pray for perfectly. And what Paul says is that the Holy Spirit, the one who has the source, is the source of truth, has all knowledge, the Holy Spirit himself takes up your same groans. He says, we groan. And then it says that the Holy Spirit groans inwardly. And that groaning, that twofold groaning, is a participation of the Holy Spirit with us because he has perfect, complete knowledge. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. He says it twice to confirm the, the truth of the fact. He says it in, in the first verse here, he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then verse 27, it says again, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so the Holy Spirit, who is God, having all perfect knowledge, all perfect wisdom, knowing the plan of God for the end of the world and also your personal destiny, he intercedes for you to the Father. And it says that the Father, the one who searches the hearts, knows what is on the mind of the Spirit. God the Father, who alone searches the heart of man, knows the Spirit's intention, for the Spirit tells him. See, your life is not just a life that you're living and you're hoping to kind of navigate into a good place before you die, and hopefully you've chosen the right religion, and you're you know, beginning to amend your life with what you see in the scriptures. No, your life has been taken up into the concern of God, that the Holy Spirit takes time for you to tell the Father the things that he has concerning your destiny. That the Holy Spirit comes alongside and begins to intercede for you to the Father. And I don't know about you, but this is earth-shattering for those who are caught in despair and, and depression and hopelessness, feelings of being alone. Brothers and sisters, God has not left you alone. The Holy Spirit is currently, right now, talking to the Father, not just for you, not just for the people in this church, but for the entire church body throughout the world. It says in this verse, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I don't know about you. If you have not yet been a, a, a parent, I, I hope that one day you would get that gift. But even if you don't get that gift, you, you can see it at work in the church and the other families around us. And I know some people who, no matter what happens, if their kid comes up and asks them for something, they will give it to them. I think that's a bad mode of parenting. A better mode of parenting is to have some desire for the destiny of your children. How much more likely are you to give something to your child if they come and ask you for something that's in your will for them versus that's outside of your will. You and I, we pray for things throughout life that are horrible. <laughs> I myself can remember times where I have asked God for things that would have been absolutely devastating to me, whether it be situational things or deliverance from some sort of trial, like, Lord, I don't want to do these chores. <laughs> Deliver me. Remember your servant. 
these ridiculous things that we pray for that are contrary to the will of God, that if he granted them to us would be a diminishment in grace. Those are those sorts of things that Paul says, we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit prays to the Father according to the will of God. He does not pray for the Father arbitrary things, politically motivated things, things that are short-sighted, things concerning just fleshly indulgences. He prays for things that are perfect, holy, and worthy of understanding. And I believe the scripture, by and large, for the most part, gives us the knowledge of what the will of God is. The will of God is maturity in Christ. And so the spirit who has perfect knowledge transcends our limited understanding and prays for us adequately. God the Father is searching the hearts of men and knows what the Spirit has on his mind for the Spirit utters it to him. And the question is, does God the Father respect the wishes of God the Holy Spirit? I think the answer is very clear. Not only is God concerned with your life, he has perfect knowledge and cares about and enters into your suffering. Therefore, because God sees all, nothing that impacts your life touches you without being filtered through the gracious, sovereign plan of God. I want to say that again. Nothing which ever touches your life actually impacts you without being filtered first through the filter of God's sovereign plan and destiny for your life. That's what Paul gets to at the end of this passage. Nothing can separate us from, from the love of Christ. He then says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is probably one of the most quoted passages in Romans. In, in the entire book, this is maybe the most popular, except maybe, I don't know, Romans Road kind of things earlier in the chapters. And it has to be understood in the context of being sandwiched between the Spirit's intercession and the father's heart, uh, wonderful heart towards his children and the son's uh, love that he is currently loving you with. It's not just some sort of arbitrary promise that if I don't get that new car, or if I don't get that job, or if I don't get married, or if I you know, get divorced, or if one of my children die, or if my business goes under, none of those things happen. None of those, things experience, none of those experiences touch your life without first going through this verse, that God is ultimately working for your good and undoing the active evil of the enemy in order to transform it for good. Remember the story of Joseph? Uh, our brother and fellow elder Jason talked about Joseph last week in the Sunday school hour. One of the things that's amazing about Joseph is that over and over again, Joseph is, he falls under the sin of other people and God transforms that sin, co-opting the purposes of evil in order to bring Joseph to the pinnacle of the nation of Egypt and saves the entire world. It's important to see that, especially in light of what goes on with Noah. God is in the business of saving the entire world. Joseph does not just store enough grain for the Israelites. He, it says that all the nations stream to Egypt and buy grain. And so God is definitely in the business of saving the world. And he does so by transforming and co-opting and repurposing the evil that the enemy does. You see, ultimately, Satan is helping God. Even though that sounds strange to believe, God is taking the actions of the enemy and undoing them and transforming them so that the glory of God in the grace of Christ would be seen on a greater scale. Not only is Satan currently a servant of God, he can never do anything other than help the plan of God. And this bears out in the rest of the New Testament, right? For if the powers or rulers of this age understood what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was ultimately Satan's undoing. So the source of confidence before God is the certain knowledge that God will finish what he starts in you. So we've just seen how the Spirit himself is interceding to the Father, and then Paul begins to move to what is God the Father doing in salvation? Christians are not winnowed through a funnel with some dropping out at each process in this chain. Look at what Paul says in these verses. For those whom he foreknew, that is God's knowledge of you before eternity, he predestined, that's him motivating or choosing for a particular destiny. 
in order that, th- that the son might be the firstborn born among many brothers, and though those who he predestined he called, those who he called he also justified, those whom he justified he also glorified. First John says that as Christ is, so also are we in this world, that you have been given by the grace of God a glory which you have now. Not just the glorification at the second coming, but a glory now. And I want you to see that Paul is not saying that those of those who he predestined, he choose, chose 95% of them. And 95% of them were foreknown and, and elected and justified. He says all, each stage in the process. What is, what is the point of this? The point of this is if God begins something in you, he is not going to let you go mid-stage. That is a great and confidence-inspiring thing. Those who are redeemed by God, therefore, never need to doubt God's active and good presence. As Romans 8 is telling us, it's all working out for good. So I want to read a quote from a, a gentleman by the name of Steve Wilkins, who is down at, at a PCA church in Monroe, Louisiana, which is where those of you might, who love Duck Dynasty might, uh, might remember Monroe, Louisiana. And uh, he, he wrote in an article on the Theopolis blog, and it's a wonderful article. I put it on the GCF Facebook page if you want to take a look at it. But I just wanted to read this quote from him because it, at the time it was just so uh, confidence-inspiring, and I thought it would be a really helpful understanding of what assurance is. Assurance is founded upon the fact that all who believe can know for certain that they are beloved of God, forgiven of their sins, and the recipient of all his promises, and thus may rest in peace with sure and certain confidence. Note this says all who believe. If you are currently trusting in Christ, looking away from your own efforts, looking away for your, from your own ability to mend yourself before God, if you have abandoned all hope and placed it upon Christ, this is true for you. It is an active uh, evidence of the work of the Spirit of God if you are currently trusting in Christ. Those who continue to believe can know this for sure. So the startling fruit of God's commitment in his promises to his children is an invincible confidence in the light of suffering and persecution. Knowing that God will not drop us at any stage in the process, we can be absolutely sure of what's going on. Paul's reasoning is that they ought to have invincible courage in the face of opposition. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Paul's bringing the reader to a moment where he has to make some sort of conclusions based on the the things that Paul has just said. He just said that the Spirit is currently praying to the Father for you, and that the Father himself has decided, he's foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. He's done that for you. And so the question is, okay, so how do we respond? Now that we've been informed that this is true of us, for those who believe, how do we respond? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The point is this, that if heaven and earth were arrayed against you, and all the angels and demons came, and the nations of men were established, and they sought to oppress the saints of God, not one of them would be lost, nor would they make any progress, even in an inch, in the war against the saints. That's what I believe Paul is saying. Absolutely unending glory given to the church. God's given to his children all that is necessary for life and godliness, and they lack absolutely nothing. They lack absolutely nothing, and they have been sustained by God in his sovereign plan and promise. So, now that Paul has demonstrated the Spirit and the Father's love for the saints, he now focuses on the Son of God. He then says in verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So the composite picture is that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, eternally existent, self-sustaining, self-glorifying, self-giving, mutually affirming, loving, reciprocating in love and giving love. This blessed Trinity is currently concerned with you. I'm reminded of the psalm where, where David says, who is man that you are mindful of him? He's looking at the creation. He considers the stars of God's heavens. He considers the entire earth and everything in it. And he says, what is man? This tiny, one meter tall person who lives for 60 years, maybe 80. What is man? And in Christ Jesus, you are intimately loved by God. You are intimately important. God knows you 
with a knowledge that is sufficient, complete, and whole. And not only that knowledge being sufficient, complete, and whole, he is powerful enough to do something about it. The Father is listening to the voice of the Spirit and the voice of the Son as they intercede for you. And knowing that God sees us in Christ, that is, in our union with Christ, we have absolute confidence that he is not going to let us go. In verse 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? The answer is no. Absolutely not. None of these things which impact your life are able to take you out of the love of Christ. That's why I was able to and will confidently say that it is a reality-defining love for Christ. It shows the weaknesses of those things which formerly have been feared. When you see the destiny that you have in Christ, that you will be glorified along with the other sons of God, and that that will not only be something wonderful for you, but it will mean the deliverance of creation from its bondage to sin. That at the unveiling and vindication of God's saints at the eschaton, that all of that will, is absolutely as sure as it will be then as it is today. Understanding that allows you to do great and wonderful things for God. Not knowing that does not, it, it, it limits your ability to, to reason that way. It limits your ability to understand what you ought to be doing or what you can do. It's not just ought to, but what is possible for you in God. I, I remember about 10 years ago, I was talking with some people who were, um, they were very formative to my early Christian walk, and I was just kind of, I was mentioning to them, you know, oh man, I just read Moses yesterday, and how he was on the mountain with God, and the elders of Israel, they ate together with him. I mean, later would I understand that that takes place every Sunday in the church, but at the time, I thought it was this amazing thing that it was just, one could hope to be there, one could wish that if I, if I just live a pious life and make the right choices and, and do the, walk according to the Spirit, that one day I would see great things in God. And after going on for probably 10 to 15 minutes about how, you know, uh, how impossible this was to hope for, for great things in God, uh, he just kind of reminded me, you know, Moses was a man with like nature of ours. that what is possible in the grace of God for you to do for the kingdom, for the sake of Christ, not just in missions, but also in your love for Christ and in, in your ability to walk hour by hour, being sustained by the presence of God, understanding and being informed and fed by the scriptures. What is possible in the grace of God for you is not currently known by you. It's greater than what you can possibly imagine. And therefore, what I'm suggesting is that if we hear the word of God rightly, we will respond to it by lifting our vision higher so that like Paul, along with Paul, we would be able to say that I am not considering the current sufferings in light of the future glory that is to be revealed. That it's not worth balancing the scales. That when you get tempted in a moment to fear man versus obey God, that it's not even an equation. That, the temptate, that you don't have to run the calculus on, is it okay to like timidly share what I have to share or do I need to go boldly? That it wouldn't be a problem for you. Or that when you're faced, young men, even young women, with the temptation to look at things that are iniquitous, that are full of death for you, even though you're tempted in that moment, that you don't have to run the calculation. That because you have a vision of where you're going, you do not at all have to worry in the moment of, is it okay for me to do this? Should I, you know, there will be forgiveness later. These sorts of things that are part of this, the enemy's strategy and temptation that you can silence them because you don't, have to, you don't have to think about it. You know where you're going. You have a destiny and you know that it is sure and you know that the grace of God is operative in your life that you're able to participate with it. And this is not just about, you know, lying or the fear of man or pornography or adultery or being greedy for money or, or being selfishly ambitious for career goals or, or what other evil you might think of or be tempted with. It transforms everything in your life, knowing where you're going, knowing the glory to be revealed for the sons of God. 
So he says that this is a reality-defining love, and it shows the weakness of those things. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth. Look at what Paul's doing. He's talking at first about created beings, and then he starts moving into geometry. Think about this for a second. I want you to, to close your eyes just really briefly, and I want you to imagine the universe and put it inside a box. I know that's kind of a weird idea. Put it inside a box, and then the question is whether God is in the box or whether the box is in God, and the, the answer is the latter. The box is in God. And what Paul is saying is that the current operative love of Christ is so amazingly transformative and reality-defining that that box could entirely disappear and nothing at all would change about your destiny in God. There is nothing in the created order, whether they be angels or demons, or rulers of this age, who could ever do anything in order to separate you from the love of Christ. You can't be taken too far away from it. You can't be removed from it by various social forces, societal forces. The opposition of other people against you is not able to move you. And so therefore, when you find yourself with the temptation to despair, and you remember the future glory that is to be revealed, and you remember the current love of the Spirit and the love of the Son being demonstrated to you in their current prayer for you at the Father, at the Father's right hand, that that right there would be the thing which severs the root at the attack of the enemy. That you would be transformed in that moment. This is why I said earlier, and we'll repeat now, even if all the angels, demons, and kingdom of, kingdoms of men should seek to align themselves against the elect, those children of God would not be moved from their destiny by even one inch at all. Christ is able to save to the utmost those who call upon him, even as he restores his people unto a grand consummation at the full unveiling of his kingdom, which is now and is being progressively revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We ask you that you would deliver us, Lord. You know, as your word says, you know and are intimately acquainted with our weaknesses. Jesus, we thank you for your gracious and loving reign that you are currently exhibiting on the throne. We also thank you, Jesus, for your suffering that you encountered in your ministry, in your incarnation. And we thank you that you have gone before us as a forerunner, that not only did you taste death, but also you were raised and you also ascended in order that we might be with you where you are. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from a lack of vision, that you would forgive us for walking naturally and walking according to what we see whether it be in our circumstances or in society or in history, that you would deliver us from short-term thinking, that you would allow us to look to the future, not only in history, but also who we can become by participating and pursuing your grace. We pray that you would begin to deliver us from ideas about you, about the future that hinder us, but that you would give us great confidence that not only we would be d delivered from despair through s in suffering, but that we would also have great boldness. We pray that you would make us mighty in you for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.